for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. Hi, I'm John Jagay. I think for all of us, when we worked at the radio station, you'd have somebody come in as a freshman and they just kind of had this it factor about them. When they walked in, you're like, wow, this person is going to do good things. This person's going to really have a career. They just have something about them. That's how I feel about today's guest, who is a year behind me. He's the class of 03. Welcome, John Farrakhani. Hey, Jag. Thanks. I really appreciate uh, you letting me join. And, and you know, I think we're going to go down a path today of things that I haven't thought about in a really, really, really long time. So I'm actually excited to dive in and remember some of the great relationships and some of the incredible things that we did together to keep the radio station on the air. Absolutely. So how does a guy from Wisconsin end up at Syracuse? The honest truth is I knew I wanted to be in media. I had worked at a radio station in high school, a tiny little 1000 watt AM station in the middle of farm country, in the middle of nowhere. And I had a sort of an obsession with Peter Jennings. I really thought television and television news was where I was headed, but I loved radio as well. And then I just happened to have a high school teacher that said, have you looked at Syracuse? And I really hadn't because I'm a Midwestern kid. I was looking at Northwestern and I was looking at University of Wisconsin. Yeah. So that's how it happened. How did you find the station when you got to campus? This is a really long time ago. This this would have been, <laughs> I didn't start my first semester because I was, you know, look, this is either embarrassing or cool, but I was in the marching band my mm-hmm. first semester there, okay. which was fall of 99. So I didn't have any free time. We were constantly marching around the dome. So I joined in January of 2000. I went to one of the recruiting fairs in the Shine Underground. Yep. That's how I first got connected. And I remember Peterman. You come to the station and you really were interested in the tech side of it, I think, more than being on the air, as I recall. Do I have that right? Yeah, I came in as part of Greg Dixon's engineering department. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was no money and there was no equipment and there was not much that could be done, except we had a bottle of rubbing alcohol and a bag <laughs> of Q-tips. Yep. Every other week or once a month, I don't remember, we would literally pull the cart machines and clean all the, you know, the shrapnel of, uh, <laughs> of magnetic tape. And you know, there are lots of people listening to this like in school right now who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about right now. But even the carts were old. Some of the carts were probably still from the 80s and they were, you know, the magnetic little shards were shredding. So we would clean them out with a Q-tip and and rubbing alcohol while we were on the air. You know, like there was probably a moment where you were on the air doing your shift and Greg and I would come in and say, can we take cart machine three? And we'd pull it out. And (laughs) it was all chewing gum and toothpicks and band-aids. You know, that was kind of what it was. And yeah, I never had a regular shift as a jock, which is probably rare for any, you know, future VP of ops or GM to never have done a shift. I just got so interested in, at that moment, keeping the station on the air. We owed $50,000 to a law firm. Mm -hmm. We had FCC problems. We had like the microphones were falling apart and duct taped. The Wheatstone boards were falling apart, you know, recruiting. Like we had so many other problems 
at that point. I had been a DJ in high school. That wasn't the thing that was really interesting to me at that point. So yeah, I was I never had a regular shift. What I love about the podcast here is that we're not talking to people who were on air. We're talking to you who did all different things at the radio station. So like you said, toothpicks and bubble gum and duct tape in that final year in the Watson uh, studio there in 99, 2000. And then it really hit the fan in 2000, 2001, when we were temporarily relocated to a house on Ostrom Avenue while they built us a brand new studio. This is probably a long loaded question, but take me through that process as best you can remember. Right. So <clears throat> Watson was a dump. Yep. You know, the carpeting was ripped up. The walls had, you know, 20 layers of paint on them. Everything was crumbling. I feel like the ceiling tiles were falling apart. <laughs> it was right. a tiny little space. It was like, it was a small studio and an even smaller production studio and one tiny little office that I remember Matt sitting in that he could barely turn around in. <laughs> and that's about it. And just a hallway of dumping ground. And so we needed to get out of there. And I think the university recognized it, that whole area, which included UUTV at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the dark rooms and whatever, it needed to be gutted. And I think that the folks at the dark rooms got a grant and they gutted the whole thing and built a terrific new facility. I think most of which is still there now, but they needed to get us out of there so we could operate from someplace for a a year, I guess. And I kind of felt like the project manager. Yeah. When I was in school, I wouldn't even have known what a project manager was. But I remember meeting with the general contractor, with, you know, the team from the university who was overseeing it with student services and then alumni who helped us. And we'll get into that story, too, I think. But what I remember is we all disappeared in, you know, May of 2000 and went home for the summer. And the engineers from WAER moved us over. You know, they essentially shut us down for a day or two and picked up the Wheatstone boards that were practically falling apart. Yep. And I remember, I think we had, you'll remember this, we had one Sennheiser studio quality microphone and the windscreens were popping off and I think there was electrical tape around it. And you'll remember the story. I'm not going to say the name, but somebody got a bloody nose that bled all over that microphone. That is in a previous episode of this podcast. You can go back to the September 11th episode. We ended on a lighter note where Peterman told the story of Bossy bleeding all over that microphone screen. Right. He was doing a sports cast or something. And yep. Anyway, we had like the CD players were falling apart and like nothing really worked. And so they picked up the crap that we had <laughs> and moved it to this. I don't know. I would call it like a shithole house on Ostrom Avenue. You know, there were a couple sororities there. And then the university, I think, had bought up all these, you know, probably hundred year old homes. And I want to say Daily Orange was a couple doors down, maybe. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they had university offices in them, you know, and most of them, they like gutted in the philosophy departments. Department offices were there and a lot of them could have been beautiful old homes. But this one was not. (laughs) This one... This one had a couple of disgusting bathrooms, hadn't been painted in years. Like the studios were in bedrooms upstairs. They cut a hole in the wall between two of the upstairs bedrooms, which was where the production studio and the on-air studio were, and put a piece of like plexi in there. So, you know, they didn't consult any of the students about what we needed. They just threw it in there because they knew it was temporary. And this is a crazy story, but I remember Jaina made me cookies <laughs> because she said, we basically, this, the radio station 
had a terrible buzz on one of the channels. Yes. Like the right channel sounded fine and the left channel was, oh, mm -hmm. there was a hum underneath it, which, you know, to any normal person would make the radio station completely unlistenable. It would have sounded terrible, but I think we were all listening and dealing with it because we thought, you know, how are we going to fix this? So I went and found the engineer at a WAER, Nick, and built a relationship with him. And, you know, was it the connection at the Mount? Was it the connection at Ostrom? Was it something in between? And I somehow convinced him to go figure it out because I couldn't have access to these areas and he had it. Yeah. Well, it turns out a manhole had filled with water. Oh my God, that's right. There was water tripping out one of the circuits that created buzz. So they pumped that out. And then we, so Jana made me cookies because I solved it. <laughs> and that strange year, uh, to just give you an idea of the hierarchy of the staff. So you were the chief engineer. I was VP of ops because nobody else was going to do it. And Jana was the yeah. program director. So she was like, nobody's listening to my radio station because there's a terrible buzz in the right channel. Who can fix this? So I went and fixed it. Mm -hmm. But that was just a, you know, a symptom of the fact that the radio station had no money. It hadn't had any investment in any equipment in, I want to say, decades, probably. By that point, this is fall of 2000, when we're all back from the summer and we're all just getting back to the fall and we're like, oh, wow, we're in a new place. And like the equipment's just as bad and the environment is even worse. And, you know, you're trying to recruit people. Yeah. This is this dumpster fire of a place that's literally, it's, it, it shouldn't even be on the air. You know, it, right. it was so bad. Remember, the CD players would skip, the CD carts would get jammed in the machines. There was nothing computerized. There was no automation. There was no playlist. You know, any spots we were running, you know, spots. I don't even know how we were editing them and then transferring them to a cart. There was nothing. So as is the case with many times in the history of the radio station, we relied on alumni for some help. We got to this place and tell us how we ended up getting some equipment improvements. The thing should not have been on the air because it was technically such a mess. And, and as part of that, you know, move to Ostrom, there was a little bit of a, a Christmas present. You know, we came back to these terrible, terrible situations as far as the buzz and, you know, a bloody broken microphone <laughs> and CD players that skipped. But we also had an alum, it was Dave Gorab, who was working at Sony Radio Networks at the time, and they had just gutted everything in New York and they were modernizing. And he sent us three gigantic Arrakis systems consoles and two like 500 disc changers and some new CD players and maybe some new cart machines and mini disc recorders and players. So something that probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars initially and Probably didn't have much value to a massive radio network, but was very valuable to us. However, it was like, I think Dave drove up a van in the middle of the night and like dumped it in one of the spare rooms in the house <laughs> and then was like, you guys figure it out because I'm not a tech guy either. Right. So I remember walking in and I'm like, oh, there's this new stuff. Well, okay, the CD players can go in quickly. Well, we can put the CD players in. We plug this and we plug that. And I'm not an engineer. Like, I'm, I'm not really a... Could have had me fooled. I figured it out, you know, again... Many current students aren't going to understand this, but the internet wasn't what it was. Yeah. You couldn't find every single manual on a company's website. You couldn't interact with people with like live customer service chats. Like that didn't exist then. You had to do pound the pavement. Even emails were spotty at yeah. that point. You know, you had to call people. So I remember we put the CD players in and I remember seeing these boards 
with all the I.O. modules, which are essentially, you know, the pots with the faders on them. And you can customize how they go. Right. Yeah. You can have uh, 10 input modules and then an output and then this and that. And Rob Crandall and I, who he was a freshman at the time, and he had a very good tech mind. Yeah. He was in Newhouse like I was, but, you know, he was a step ahead of me as far as tech went. And the two of us called Arrakis and found somebody who would befriend us and like the whole, hey, we're these college students story in Colorado. It was a ragtag bunch of, yeah. He like faxed me a few pages of the manual <sighs> of this thing that was, even at that point, was still probably eight or 10 years old, you know? And Rob and I figured out how to put the boards together and figured out how to wire them. And we pulled out the Wheatstone boards that were on their last legs. Like, rats had chewed on the power cords for those things, you know? So we put these newer boards in and, you know, we like shut the station off for a night and switch from one to the other. And this is late fall, John, late fall or, or winter, some, something like that. And then we brought in the mini discs. We got rid of the cart machines and all production record went to the mini discs. And then we played out commercials spots, sorry, on mini discs. Sponsorships. Yeah, exactly. Sponsorships. Thank you. So we replaced the backup studio, you know, the production studio. And then I think we did the on-air studio. And I remember we were halfway through it all. And, you know, this is like kids being driven by Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. And we didn't know what we were doing. You know, many people who listen to this will understand what out of phase is, right? But many won't. So I didn't know what it was at that point. I should have known what it was uh, if I'm rewiring a whole radio station. But the founder of the radio station, Craig Fox, owned the Radio Disney station in Syracuse at the time and had lived there for a long time and was a loyal listener, the phone rang when I was in the process of rewiring this. And he says, you're out of phase. And I'm like, who is this? What are you talking about? What does that mean? Because I didn't know. He talked me through what to do to fix it. We fixed it. And, you know, still in less than stellar physical space in this house, we finally got back to the point of, okay, we can operate. Yeah. CD players work. We can create sponsorships and play them back on mini discs. I still did get calls about the mini disc jamming in the machines on my cell phone in the middle of the night uh, when I was living in Lawrence that year. I do remember that. But we got back to the point of like, okay, the place can operate. Yeah. We're going to survive. We don't have a terrible buzz and, uh, you know, long gaps in programming because the equipment is just so bad. We weren't losing their station under bridges like it was on AM anymore. Remember, that was a problem at one point, too. Yep. And I do remember stuff actually working, being there over winter break that year, that 2000, 2001 winter break, because we split it. I remember three ways where we had uh, Paul Chambers took the first third of the break. He was our GM at the time. I took the middle of the break because, hey, let the Jewish kid work on Christmas. And then Brett Bossy kind of ran the station the third third of the break. Um, and we kind of ran these high school kids ragged trying to keep the station on the air. And I remember one of the early days of automation at the radio station I got my hands on a five disc CD player and uh, I burned five 60 minute CDs uh, with a legal ID at the beginning of each one so we could rotate our five hour overnight shift, even if every hour is. <laughs> and then I remember I was down a CD because of the CDs I burned. I realized I used the album cut, not the radio edit of Eminem's stand with all the swears in it. So I had to pull that CD out of the rotation. So we were, we were, you know, like you said, duct tape and bubble gum. But then we got back in the spring. We were back to our full staff and we kept the thing going. Yeah. 
you know, I know that there were glory days of the radio station that, you know, people were beating down the door to come in and they were giving away cars and they had amazing promotions team. And there was zero problem uh, staffing the radio station around the clock. You know, in fact, there were probably people competitively fighting over the overnight shift. Right. That was, you know, late 80s, early 90s. This was a different time period. It was just a different world. And, you know, the facilities were a dumpster fire. So recruiting was harder. Interest in the radio station was different. We were doing what we could at the time to get by because I think interest level in the radio station and technology and the internet, so many things had changed between the late 80s, early 90s time period, which I think anybody would agree was the pinnacle of the radio station. Right. Versus when you and I were there. Which is what's kind of cool about doing the podcast is we were kind of highlighting all these different eras of the station. You know, one year they're giving away cars at the New York State Fair. The next year we're on a five disc changer overnight and, you know, swapping out bloody microphones and, and cart decks for mini disc players and donated equipment from Dave Gorab at, over at Sony. Yes, but let me interrupt you there because the point here that I want to make is that it's still evidence that it's the greatest media classroom in the world because it's not just the on-air product media classroom, or it's not just the promotional media classroom. It's engineering, it's operations, it's leadership, it's recruitment, it's solving problems, right? Like I've had a lot of jobs and worked all over the country. And I will absolutely tell you that the things that I learned at WJPZ, like make a to-do list of all the problems that we had when I walked in there yeah. and you were a big part of it and Peterman and Matt Del Signore, and I could go on and on and on about how many people roll up their sleeves and put their brain power together. The station shouldn't have been on the air and the station shouldn't have even existed in that time frame of, you know, 2000, 2001. But we figured it out and became problem solvers and made it continue to exist technically, operationally. We adjusted to technology. You know, we needed to be putting in computer systems yeah. that could play music, you know, just to educate people who wanted to go into radio, who were going to work at Clear Channel or Citadel or whatever at that time. They needed to understand how the basics of automation work. And we, we saved the radio station from from going under. We saved the radio station from the university taking it over. We saved the radio station from the FCC probably pulling the license from lawsuits for not operating properly. All of those things were in play at that time. And I learned an ungodly amount about how to solve problems and how to bring people together, people who know nothing and have just enthusiasm and interest. And that would describe me. I knew nothing. I was on the phone with lawyers and pulling FCC documents. I don't know anything about that. You didn't either. <laughs> right. Either did Peterman. And we kept the thing going, you know, so we're still having the conversation today about its future and its history and how it's servicing Syracuse University students right now. I should mention as an aside and talking to alumni from the uh, 2010s decade, the next time they revamped the studio, they actually put them on out of voice tracked studios in Newhouse. I think there was a lesson learned of don't put them in a house off campus because that's not going to serve the station well. But same thing, history kind of repeating itself. They were in voice tracked in studios in Newhouse. They had a skeleton crew by the time they came back to their new station. They had to start recruiting all over again because they had a skeleton crew that didn't have like a home and a radio station. Yeah. So we get to what was my senior year, your junior year. We get to our new Mental Media Center. Yeah. 
and it was like it, it, Christmas because we had like new state of the art stuff. At that point, it was because we had a stunning space. We had a production office. We had, a, you know, a GM office. There was storage space. We had a beautiful, huge studio. We had a production studio. Everything was pristine I, and, and literally pristine. I remember the, you know, the soundproofing on the walls was this crystal, beautiful white. And um, it didn't last that long. It got very dirty and ripped up. But um, <laughs> it looked beautiful and we could recruit and we had like bumper recruitment classes. Having the facilities was a big part of it. When you walked into Ostrom or the old Watson, it was embarrassing and gross and you didn't want to be there. And this was, there was energy from the existing staff because everybody was excited and proud. And that translated into, you know, a hundred new people who showed up to the recruitment and were interested. And then when they actually get to the station, then it's like, oh, wow, this is special. This is great. There's something happening here. There's momentum. There's technology. People are solving problems. It was night and day. I remember, you know, being part of the group that wired the new station. And again, like, this is something that the university should have helped us out on. They should have hired real engineers, but it was students. It was me and it was Rob. And it was like a friend of mine from high school. And it was Steven. And we designed the console desk that was in there. Yep. And I remember I screwed up the measurement. Really? The board did not fit in there. I based the measurements that I gave the contractor on a manual and the actual board was different because the meter bridge was different. So it was six or eight inches off or something. And so we had to cut the end of the thing of the actual Formica. But anyway, we were just figuring it out with our own ingenuity and our own blood, sweat and tears. So we wired that whole radio station. And one other thing that you and I had, had chatted about is there was a lot of leftover gear from the Gorab uh, donation. Yep. There was an extra board and a bunch of I.O. modules and these huge CD changers and stuff I don't even remember, but stuff that we didn't have space for and couldn't use. But I knew it had some value to it. So I, you know, in the early days of the Internet here, shopped around and found this gentleman in North Carolina, a really southern gentleman who said, oh, yeah, kids, you drive that stuff down here and I'll uh, give you a couple thousand dollars for it. And so Peterman and I rented a U-Haul or a Ryder truck or something and drove all night. And Katie Bell was VP of business at the time. And she was like, stay in cheap hotels. Don't spend any money. Like, <laughs> make sure that like you come back with a check. And she was right because there was debt at the time. There was a lot of debt. So we drove down there and sold the stuff to this gentleman. And we ended up secretly, I think, spending all the money with trade. So we came back with a new set of ElectroVoice studio monitors and two or three, uh, you know, Sure Studio microphones. And But it was stuff that we desperately needed. So that key donation and the ingenuity and the, just the work ethic of me and a team of others kind of getting it in place and figuring it out and then selling the rest and um, buying other new equipment that we needed desperately at the time. You know, that was actually a turning point. There's a previous episode interview with Dave Gorov, and I'm, I'm mad at myself for not remembering that it was Dave who made that donation asking about it on the podcast, but I'm glad we're giving him his props here for as much as he's given to the radio station of time and effort and donations. That really was huge for us at the time. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. 
you never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. You're talking about, you know, money and being strapped for cash. So you become VP of ops your junior year and then GM your senior year. I have that right, right? Yep. And a decision that I think was controversial at the time, but needed to be done in retrospect was sort of a two part of it. You know, we ended up taking the radio station off the air summer of 2002, which was right before your senior year. I was had just graduated and then making the decision to go back to university funding, which had been done in previous iterations of the station many years ago, but realizing that to keep this thing going so we weren't duct tape and bubble gumming everything, we actually needed university funding. Talk to me about that decision. Well, I mean, I, I think anybody who's worked anywhere in this business and radio and television and whatever it is, in any business really, gear has a life, you know? You have to replace it. You have to have a capital expenditure plan yeah. to replace your boards and everything. Things don't have infinite lives. And what we put into, you know, Ostrom and Watson and what was kind of the heart of the radio station, those Arrakis boards, they were okay and 10 years old already. And we needed a sustainable system to keep the radio station going. And more than that, what my plan was, and I remember having lots of conversations with Scott Meach at the time, because I think the general feeling of the Alumni Association was, and they weren't wrong because of what they had experienced. They had experienced when you take dollars from the student association, the student association wants to control you. Yeah. And that happened. That happened and that stunk because, you know, it's not a university-owned radio station. It is a student organization. But again, the university, the student body, everybody was at a different time. Technology, it was all at a different time. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty confident after having conversations with the VP of student affairs and even the dean of students I remember talking to and the head of the student organization, that that's not what they wanted to do. They did not want to control us. So I vetted that because Scott and I and many other alums had other conversations. And my goal wasn't to just keep the radio station on the air and get a couple bucks. Like I, I didn't want 20 grand to replace this widget and replace that thing <laughs> and whatever. And what we did was we shot for the moon. And I think we asked for like $300,000, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And we got most of it. And that allowed the station to flourish. I mean, we replaced the boards with state-of-the-art brand new boards that you would find at Z100. Mm -hmm. We put in a real computer system where you could put, you know, play your music and all your spots from a computer. I'm not gonna say the word automation. Um, <laughs> replace the microphones. We put in better studio monitors. Like we gave the sports department a fighting chance. They had a 25-year-old uh, Comrex wow. system that worked over telephone lines. You know, we bought them a system that allowed it to transmit high quality audio over IP over a phone line. Survival of the radio station, it was going to get figured out, right? I was there at a pivotal moment, but I guarantee you if it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else just because that's the way the place has operated since the early 70s. What I wanted to do and what I was pretty confident the university wasn't going to take over any editorial control, creative control, what I wanted to do was set the station up to succeed for the long term with wonderful facilities and technology oh. that people would be able to learn and grasp in college that they would then see at Infinity or wherever they were going when they graduated in 02 or 03 or 04, whatever the case may be. 
I think that's key because, again, in talking to alums from the 2000s and the 2010s in this podcast, they've talked about going out and broadcasting high school football games. They've talked to your sports uh, points on all these different things that the way the medium landscape had changed at that point from you know 1990 to 2003, 2004, we needed that money to modernize the station so that if you graduated, you would know how to use the equipment at whatever job you got. And I think in many cases, thanks to that funding, some students and some guests on this podcast have said the equipment at JPZ was better than anything they got to in the real world, wherever they started. Yeah. Or at the very minimum, it was at least a bridge. And like, you know, they may not have had the performance talent yet, but they knew how to run the machine. They knew how to run the computer. And that was a shoe in where they you know, we're a clear channel in some small markets that, hey, come work here because you, you've used this before. Yeah. And look, I know that there are probably still, you know, alums who predate me who, you know, think negatively on our, our um, decision to go back and ask the Student Association for funding. But I think we went to them in 02 because here's the funny thing. I wrote the proposal. I came up with the budget. And this was, I think, spring of 03. And we put it through and I got it approved. And then I graduated. Right. So none of the fun part of putting all that shit in <laughs> service and, you know, seeing the place go from like a broken down Hugo to, you know, uh, a Ferrari, an OK Ford Taurus to a Ferrari. I never got to experience that. But I know a lot of alums have, you know, mixed feelings about that. But I think it was the right decision. And we started implementing in 03. And you and I are sitting here having this podcast conversation in 2022. So by my count, that's 19 years. I don't think there's been a problem. I don't think there's been a point where anybody's ever said, you know, knock, knock, knock. Hey, you can't have this person on here. You can't run that song. You can't do this kind of programming. You can't do this. And I think that's a credit to the university, too, when they realized that having a state-of-the-art WJBZ could be a great recruiting tool for high schoolers who come and see this radio station. You and I both know that in every recruiting uh, brochure of Newhouse and Syracuse University, there is uh, we have two or three campus radio stations, WAER, WJPZ. They use it to market and recruit. And it was a dumpster fire, and they did nothing about it until we kind of rattled the cages. And, and I will say, you're right, it was a credit to the university. A bunch of people's names, so I don't remember, but Chuck, I think Mary Hugh ran student affairs at the time, and he was a good partner. There were people who recognized it, that it can't just be a regular old student organization because there's an FCC license. Yeah. It's not the same as, you know, whatever else, whatever dance troupe or you name it, you pick whatever the other intramural sport or whatever. Yeah. It's not the same. There's a federal license. So it's a little different. And when you're going to use it to recruit, you've got to put a little bit of focus on it and energy into it. But I agree with you. They stepped in and helped us out and they worked with me and we fixed all the legal debt that we had and fixed a bunch of stuff, but then left it alone. You referenced earlier, John, the lessons you learned and how it applied throughout your career. Uh, take me through your career after JPZ, because you've had a heck of a run. You've produced television in major markets. You've worked the network level. You've got a bunch of projects since. Take me through your journey since Syracuse. The beginning of my career and JPZ kind of intertwined. My senior year when I was GM, I was also producing newscasts at Channel 3. Mm -hmm. I produced the six and 11 o'clock newscasts on uh, Saturday and Sunday at uh, the NBC station in Syracuse. I was very lucky to do it. And so by the time I graduated in May of 03, I had, I had a year's producing experience under my belt in market 80. And I remember that time. That was a crazy time. I knew that I would have zero days off. You know, I worked, I worked over the weekend and I had meetings at the radio station all day Friday. And I think our 
Uh, our senior staff meetings were like Tuesday or Wednesday night and between school and like it was a crazy, crazy year. But I think it set me up to succeed as far as career goes. And it also taught me work ethic. You know, if you want to get ahead, if you want to get promoted, make more money, you know, be able to be involved in bigger, better projects, you have to sacrifice and you have to work hard. Yeah, that's the one thing that I would really like to tell people who are younger, who I'm hiring now and working now and those who are in school. So I I worked in Syracuse. Then uh, I jumped to a Hearst station in South Carolina for about a year. Then I jumped to uh, WDIV in Detroit which I spent a very long time there, almost eight years working there. I, I know you, you're in Detroit. and I think we just missed overlapping, actually. I left in uh, early 2011. You and I have a, a lot of love for Southeast Michigan and Metro Detroit, and uh, I love going back there. That was where I learned to really do TV. I learned how to interact with really fabulous talent. I produced the morning show. Then I, I was consumer investigative producer. Then I was the EP of the morning show. And that was where I also first learned. I've, I learned live television as a producer there. I learned investigative. I learned storytelling. And I learned leadership. At 28 or something, I was running a morning show in Market 10 at a, you know, a really strong station. Yeah. And then I decided I was 30 years old and needed to get out of the cold weather. So I moved to Miami, worked at WPLG for a couple of years and was an EP there and loved that. And that was an ABC station, and that became a bridge to ABC News in New York. And I was about 32 in 2013, got a dream job. I was lucky, and the timing was perfect. It was a dream job, and it was the perfect fit that I got the job as showrunner of Weekend Good Morning America. Yeah. I could oversee the team. I could oversee the budgets. I could run the show day to day. And it was a big enough role that, I, that it was a major challenge, and I had autonomy but it wasn't so big that it was too much for me. You know, okay. it was right on that line. Okay. But I was able to go in and, and really successfully run Weekend GMA while learning how to do the weekday show. And then I moved over and was doing the weekday show is the number two in the morning. You know, one of the ninjas in the control room every morning who's making all the decisions like 2015, 2016, the crazy time when, when Trump was running in that crazy election. And every single morning, there'd be a new headline that would come out and we'd blow up the show. So I learned a ton there. At ABC News, everybody is the cream of the crop. Yeah. Everybody has an Ivy League degree. Everybody's traveled the world. Everybody will put their personal life to the side and work, work, work to make the product better. It was an inspiring way to, you know, work with George Stephanopoulos and, and David Muir and, and a lot of the just unbelievable journalists and leaders there. I met my wife there. And uh, we decided after five years of it to walk away and, and decompress and take some time off. So we lived out of suitcases for about a year and hiked in Montana and Wyoming and Big Sur, California, and spent some time in Hawaii and went to Mexico and reconnected with family that we'd ignored for, you know, the five years we've been at ABC. And then decided we're going to move to California and, um, you know, spend some time in San Francisco and uh, landed in Los Angeles. And I was, again, you know, I think my relationships. And I'm saying this not to toot my own horn. I'm saying this hopefully for, you know, young people who are listening. My relationships and my work ethic helped me reinvent from news into entertainment. And that doesn't happen that much. I think the West Coast entertainment producers and leadership and, you know, that whole Hollywood thing doesn't necessarily understand news and New York and how that works, you know? Right. Uh, certainly not on the scripted side. I, I was always on the unscripted alternative side. but 
did a show for Fox Entertainment and then did another one and another one and another one and did a project for Vice uh, and did a project for YouTube Originals. And uh, just through relationships and, you know, having good conversations, one thing led to another and was building a, you know, a decent book of work there in L.A. My wife lives in L.A. I, you know, I still have a home in L.A., but about a year and a half ago, another old relationship came to me and said, hey, I just got a job building News Nation in Chicago, we're turning this old cable channel, WGN America, which now runs reruns of Tim Allen and Tom Selleck. Um, <laughs> we're peeling away the syndication and we're turning it into all news because the world needs an unbiased news source. You know, CNN and MSNBC or this and Newsmax and Fox and whatever on the other side. And the world needs a non-combative, non-partisan, hey, let's just stick to the facts kind of a thing. I joined him last summer, summer of 2021, thinking that I was going to help launch a morning show because they had some programming in the evening and they had nothing in the morning or during the day at the time. And so, you know, I'm a Midwestern kid. My wife is from Chicago. I thought eh, I'll spend three, four months in Chicago, staff this thing up, build it up, and then, you know, make my way back to the sunshine of Los Angeles. And to be honest with you, the project of building and creating, you know, hire a talent, hire an EP you know, work with them, build the staff, create the graphics package, figure out the rehearsal schedule and how we put this thing on. What's the format? What's the brand? How do we do this and that? How do we market it? You know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat every three or four months. It became too attractive. It became too interesting. It was a no brainer fit for both me and Nextstar. So I'm really appreciative that a Nextstar is letting me, you know, partner with them and do this. We're part of the way there. We're hiring. So either kids in school now or any alums at any point, I'm looking for people in New York and Washington and Chicago and our bureaus around the country, big thinkers and people who want to work hard. You've hired JPZ alumni in previous roles. Yeah, oh, no doubt. In uh, Detroit, in Miami, in New York, at ABC. Absolutely. No doubt. I have nothing but really, really positive feelings about WJPZ. I've given back a little bit. I need to do more. I need to come back more. I need to be more available. Please come back to the banquet. It's really about the interaction with students and how I can help them. So I hopefully yeah. current students will listen to this and maybe take a little grain of something that I did and realize I'm not going to do it that way or I am going to do it that way. I need to um, figure out how to get more involved and get back into it. Are you comfortable sharing any contact information for folks to reach out to you if you're hiring? Yeah, for sure. My email address is jfaricani at nextstar.tv. Nextstar has only one T, N-E-X-S-T-A-R.tv. And we'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm happy to jump on the phone with people. I'm happy to uh, take resumes and have conversations. A lot of it, I'll probably ship you off to the right department, but I would really, really love to get back and more engaged in Z89. And I feel deeply about preserving it and making sure that it's, uh, you know, at its fighting weight for the future so it can do what it did for you and for me and for all these other, you know, names that we've talked about who it's launched careers. It absolutely, you know, helped launch my career and put me in a way better place at every moment of critical thinking. Since you bring it back to WJPZ, last question for you, and a two-part question. Are there relationships from the station that folks you still stay in touch with? And if you can think of one, give me a funny story from behind the scenes at your time at the station. I think Josh is probably my closest at the moment, Josh Wolf. Yep. But, you know, Jana Fiorello has been a good friend and Matt Delsignor. We had a few great dinners when we were living in San Francisco because he's there. And I feel like I could pick up the phone and call Peterman at any point. And honestly, Scott Meach is somebody who I consider to be somebody who was foundational in teaching me stuff. He and I butted heads 
when I was GM and he was president of the Alumni Association. But I feel like the two of us came together at a time when he was building the Alumni Association into something. Yes. It was a drinking club for a long time. And Scott did fundraising and smart financial investing. And he and I actually are the two that put our heads together that came up with Fall Conference. Because I told Scott, most of the students see the alums as, you know, folks who like to come back and throw a few back and be nostalgic. And I said, how do we figure out what's the next bridge, right? How do we get the alums to interact better? So Scott and I came up with that and we did the first one together. We have a previous episode of the podcast with Scott Meach and talked about building out the Alumni Association. So I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that. He did a terrific job. He took it from a social organization into a real powerhouse and helper of the station and the students. That is 100% Scott. And he mentored me and helped me out with a lot of different things. I picked up the phone as GM many, many times and talked to him. And he was always fair and really, really classy about everything that he did and taught me. So I would say Scott was another person. A funny story, um, you know, the bossy bleeding on the microphone is a, is a pretty funny, hilarious story. But um, any story that involves Peterman is funny. Uh, Marty Dundix was always a crack up. Um, I, you know, there isn't anything that's popping directly into my mind. I'll give you one because I had one in the chamber if you didn't have one at the ready. So I remember we'd had a party on South Campus. I want to say it was Jana Fiorella's apartment. Oh, I know this. <laughs> All right, go ahead. This is embarrassing, but go ahead. So it was a weekend party. And then I think it was, a. And you'll have to help me with the details here. I think it was a Monday night. And we had like half a keg left and we're like, well, we're college students. We're poor. We don't want to waste beer. Like, hey, everybody come down to the apartment on Monday night mm-hmm. and let's try to help finish the keg. And there was just too much beer left in this keg for the group was there. And John Farrakhani, as he did, as he stepped up whenever he was called upon at the radio station, stepped up. And I don't know how much of that keg you drank, but you were going <laughs> to make sure that we didn't waste the beer. And I just remember all of us being in awe. I don't know if it's your mid western roots or what it is but you finished so much of that keg because as with your time at the radio station there was a job that needed to be done and you were sure to finish it that's completely true it was at jana's house jana's south campus apartment and i didn't go to the initial party i want to say it was a saturday night yeah i think yeah i didn't go to that and then everybody was probably hung over sunday and jana was like oh I've, i've got a keg of beer that's swimming in water, no longer ice. It's room temperature or nearly room temperature. <laughs> and I think I think we watched Monday Night Football and sat around and watched a game or two. That sounds right. And drank that beer. And I don't, I drank a lot of beer that night. That's all I remember. And I do remember that I, there probably are old photos someplace where, you know, of us lifting the empty keg up over our heads. Well, John Furcani, thank you so much for your contributions as a student, as an alum, and for spending a few minutes today with us on a Saturday as we're recording this. Always a pleasure to reconnect, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, same back at you. And thanks for all the work you're doing on this. This is probably going to amount to thousands of your hours that you're giving back to Z89. So thanks for that. And I can't wait to listen to pour through, you know, all my friends and and uh, all the great stories about the history of the radio station. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening 
listening right now.